This podcast is presented by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at www.uctv.tv. Enjoy the presentation. Good morning. I'm a bit overwhelmed by and maybe intimidated by the audience that has shown up to listen to what I may have to say, hope to say to you. Uh, we are uh, uh, at a time in, in uh, the world where we have people f- coming from the presidency of Iran questioning whether there was such a thing as the Holocaust. Most of us, we know that there was. The documentation is overwhelming, but uh, we still have denials. Now, when we talk about the Holocaust, I'd like to say that everyone has his or her own Holocaust who participated in this period of uh, Nazi atrocities. And mine is different in the sense from what you may have heard more, is that I was born into a family in Germany. And uh, German Jews were more assimilated and integrated in the society than were the ones in Eastern Europe which could be exterminated and were exterminated more easily because they were all clustered in one place or another. Uh, I want to start, and having said that, I may come back to the Holocaust, but that was the main distinction that I think ought to be made from the beginning. Uh, The handout gives you three poems, and I thought it might be helpful if I started just by reading the first one of these because it allows me to key into this uh, meaning of the Holocaust for the Jews in Germany. And so you can follow me or you can just listen to me with my cracked voice, but it will be all right. The term crystal night refers to the, as I think wrote below, to the broken glass, the white spread uh, destruction of particularly shops, and uh, Jewish shops were uh, rather dominant and, and, and very widely uh, known in Germany, and they vented their, their uh, first hatred right there on, on these uh, shops. So, and I will briefly then explain what comes with it. So Crystal Night was that night, November 9th, and that's also why I'm doing this, because we are here on November 5th, just a little bit away from, what is it now, uh, close to 70 years. November, fog-bound and gray the day, especially so for Jews. Shrouded in mist was the swift foray silenced in fear the news. It happened at night, it went on by day. At dusk, the brown shirts withdrew. But this single night and this one day struck like lightning out of the blue. False idols had fanned to white heat the flames of hatred and prejudice. With blaspheming lips, they called the games that sundered our families. The mothers screamed, the children whined, as husbands, as fathers, were bound and led from their homes, leaving behind lives built on familiar ground. 
while headlines blared and radios blared to justify violence, husbands and fathers were herded, the hair behind Dachau's barbed wire fence. How many Aryans closed their eyes? Did winter's fog hide the theft? Mothers and children raised unheard cries in Jewish homes, man bereft. I was about 10 and a half years old at that time, and in a family of uh, six, well, at that time there were four children, yes, five children in my family. A, a girl had been born in, earlier in April, and there were four boys of us in, uh, in the family. And, uh, well, it was a horror, horror, the, the most horrifying uh, moment of my life up to that point, all our lives, I guess. We were living in a uh, apartment on the street level, and we were uh, uh, just really waiting to sit down to dinner when uh, we heard these footsteps, these... Uh, uh, boots going upstairs because there were a number of Jewish families in the city of Cologne, which is where we were living then, and uh, waited until they came down and slammed on our doors and just came in with guns, uh, revolvers uh, in hand and sticks in hand and uh, ran right into the rooms and confronted my, uh, my grandmother who was living with us and my uh, parents, of course, and we children were cowering in the, in the side in the living room, uh, well, just scared, I suppose. So just to describe that night further, they, they investigated my, uh, my family's records as far as being German was concerned, and of course my grandmother had lost a son in the First World War, and he had been decorated. My father had been fighting in the war and had been in French captivity. And uh, somehow or other, they left us alone without my father being taken. But the key event of that period was uh, unauthorized or sudden arrest without any reason. Why would people get arrested and taken away? And that's what happened on that day throughout Germany. Now, uh, the reason for that was, of course, and that now goes back to, uh, to uh, uh, the history a little bit earlier. There had been an influx of Jews from Poland and other areas in, uh, in Europe into Germany because apparently the economy was getting better in Germany and opportunities were there. And uh, being not German by birth, these people were the first on whom the Nazis decided to uh, vent their hatred. And so they had uh, grabbed those that they could, and many of them, and had interned them some months earlier in 1938 interned them on the Polish border, sort of in, under very miserable conditions. And one of the uh, boys from those families who had been studying in France 
had just received a letter or some other communication from his parents on the conditions in those internment camps and uh, took it into his mind to take or buy a gun and go and shoot the uh, attaché of the Consul of Germany in Paris. That uh, being done, it was immediately used as a pretext for this crystal night. And, uh, well, the poor fellow was, of course, arrested and tried, but uh, the, the Germans made out of this a uh, conspiracy of Jews with the plutocrats of Britain and England and America and other places and of the Bolsheviks, which they had linked all together. Uh, was in, So that was the, uh, the event that happened in Germany. Now, in 1938, Hitler was just uh, happy to uh, annex Austria, which is, of course, his homeland. As you all know, uh, Hitler is not a genuine German, as the Germans were there, but is a, an Austrian who wanted to be a super-German. Uh, so they took this uh, pretext and they mounted this first great action in Germany. When uh, Maybe I just go back a little bit just to say that my father had originally been in a village. He had been a, a uh, broker of real estate village and uh, a uh, merchant, grain merchant. He had a, we had a big silo and a big uh, grain warehouse on our lot where we lived. And um, in 1935, the Nazis decided to start their alienation uh, ideas and passed laws restricting Jews. And the first thing they restricted was land can only be used, be, be held by German Aryans. No, no other can have it. So my father lost uh, that. And then grain was the next thing that they similarly said. They couldn't be used, so he, he had to sell his house and his business at a uh, uh, great loss or total loss. I was too young to know. And in fact, to a Dutchman, a Hollander, had to come in because Germans were afraid to deal with him directly, Germans in the, uh, in the village. We moved to Cologne at that point, and that's why we were in Cologne when this, this was, thing was happening. Uh, and my, my purpose in saying all of this is that the perspective from a German-Jewish family is totally different from that of a Eastern European-Jewish family, where the, uh, the uh, bulk of the victims come from, because I imagine it's between five and six million Jews from east of Germany proper uh, died in the Holocaust, whereas Germany only had 600,000, and uh, the rest of the Europe that came under Nazi domination had perhaps the other 400,000 that uh, came from France, Italy, uh, Norway, Sweden, Denmark, and uh, uh, well, that's about it, Belgium and, Holland and the Netherlands. So, this, having said that, this just sets the stage for you that what it was for me 
when we were living in, in Cologne, persecution had begun fairly early. Uh, Jews were not allowed to attend regular schools. And so another reason for going to Cologne was that there was a school for Jews at the time, a recognized state school for Jews, which I then attended. And um, yes, sir. I have a question. Please. Yes, my question has to do with why um, the local Germans were afraid to purchase your father's land or possessions or what have you, whereas a Dutch person became the owner? The, the reason is that the, the, the uh, local population would were afraid to deal with him because it would look like they were doing us a favor. At that point, the hysteria was such that anybody who was, uh, who was even remotely sympathetic, openly, business is an open, open matter, uh, is, a, uh, is, is subject to reprisals of one sort or another. Thank you. And uh, I'd like to say, just for a... Uh, uh, I started to talk about the kind of persecution there was, not being able to go to the school, then uh, there is nothing as, as serious, in, as deadly in the, uh, in the way of, of uh, propaganda as to get hold of the children. And that's what Hitler did and his, his uh, henchmen, they did. They, got, they established the Hitler Youth and uh, those turned into real monsters very soon and they, in Cologne, right about a half a block away from us, there was a, a big Jewish head for exaggerated nose and cheeks and jowls and whatnot. Uh, and under it was just written, the enemy. Right. Daily, the radio was not doing anything but uh, going against Jewish, uh, anti-Jewish propaganda and hinting at uh, conspiracies to bring down the government and whatnot. So it, it is a mass hysteria uh, brought up and supported by the Hitler youth, the young people who went and informed on their parents if the parents were found to be or known to them to be in, in, in any way kind to Jews or friendly or anything else. So almost immediately after 1935, that was gone. The German populace was under mass hysteria and under mass control. 99% votes for Hitler and his party, of course, and all of these things, because people by that time already were afraid of the consequences. And the brown shirts, which were the, the um, agents of the uh, National Socialist German Workers' Party, NSDAP, uh, which... Um, they, they were rowdies, actually. They were bullies and whatnot. They were the lowest kind of the people, and, but they were also at the same time the one that they were willing to use force at the slightest provocation. And they were very happy to do this job on, on November 8, 1938. The other thing which you would really want to think about is 
that German Jews were on the whole relatively well off. You found the lawyers, the doctors, the, uh, the, the bankers, Rothschild, uh, the uh, industry even, uh, ThyssenKrupp, and, and were all, all capitalized by, by Jewish people and so uh, So it wasn't a very difficult thing for, for the propaganda machine of Dr. Goebbels to uh, get the Germans to realize that if they could take over whatever the Jews had, it was going to give it to them free, and the government took the rest and, and used it for uh, their defense or war, war uh, machines. So all in all, the Germans were, I think, very happy to see this development. And so this, that's part of the situation. So while we had this kind of uh, persecution going on, especially from the Hitler Youth, they, they were always lying in wait for us boys. We, uh, in, since in 1939, we had to begin wearing the Jewish star with the word Jew written in German, written right across the yellow star with the black lines on the outside, which you have all seen in, in, in other places on the Holocaust. And um, they were just waiting and lying there and throwing stones at us and sticks at us and certainly yelling at us with calling us all kinds of epithets. And so uh, that was, but it's minor. You can, sticks and stones may break my bones, which I don't want them to do. But uh, words will never hurt me. But so, anyhow, so that was the, the situation in Germany uh, until 1939 when they went into Poland. And with that, from that moment on, the uh, situation changed entirely and they decided that, well, this is not Germany, this is not coming back to Germany, there is nothing really so bad. And they started the extermination of Jews in Poland, followed by Russia when they invaded Russia, once Russia turned, turned against uh, Germany. And uh, there were about, I would, I would guess, between six and eight million Jewish people living in that area alone, and then uh, later in Hungary and so on. So these, these were simpler because in most cases the Jews were concentrated and they could be identified and could be isolated and could be grabbed and brought wherever they wanted to do and kill them. And the killing was in many different ways, which I'd like to discuss in a moment briefly. But uh, initially, it was just shooting or, uh, or uh, well, mostly shooting. And bur burial, open burial, uh, mass graves and whatnot. Uh, but then uh, they went into scientific methods and they developed this Cyclone V, the uh, uh, cyanide-type gas that... Um, they used extensively in, in, in Auschwitz and elsewhere, not just in, in gas chambers, but in improvised places, large, large uh, um, trucks, large trucks that they specially constructed or had, or any kind of a building that they could make airtight, more or less, and was used widely, very widely used. So. That's 39, this came in Poland, that was the war, started the war for us in, in Europe. Uh, and in Germany, actually, nothing much changed until 1940, 41, 
when, uh, in the meantime, I guess they got the lists together, and then they started pulling people from all parts of Germany and sent them on what we call a transport or, you know, deportation. And um, initially, the, these uh, transportations were to camps in Germany, uh, big, big camps like names you've heard, Bergen-Belsen, Sachsenhausen, uh, and a few, a few Dachau was one of them also, but a smaller one, actually. And, um, and initially, these people, uh, let me go back to Dachau for a moment, just to say the people who came on November 9th and 10th to Dachau were taken there or to Sachsenhausen or to one of the other camps. They were let go after about six or seven weeks, and they were go, let go with the, um, with the um, instruction, get out of Germany at once. They were given 48 hours to leave Germany. They came back. They told some people. But it is an amazing thing that when you don't want to hear something or when you don't want to believe something, it just didn't raise enough fear or anguish about this thing. And they said, oh, well, you go. Nothing will happen to us here. There are too many. We have too many friends and too many people that know us, and it's too open. They can't just do and go about murdering people. So that's one of the unfortunate things which is probably true of every, every time when you are in a situation where you have things to lose and where you believe that uh, you are in, in a fairly safe position. You don't want to hear the worst thing that's possible. But these people knew, and these people got out. And some of their relatives got out with them. But on the whole, very little was possible. The other thing that was against emigration is that uh, the rest of the world was also not aware, not listening. And as you, as you well know, Mr. Chamberlain went to, to uh, Nuremberg, to Munich, and uh, appeased Hitler, and uh, others did the same. I mean, after all, Hitler was building a German army against the, uh, the regulations and dictates from Versailles Treaty. And he was uh, building an industry, a, a, a war industry, and nobody did anything about it. And people were not anxious to take people who were just running away. And so the, uh, the United States had a uh, quota system, and I remember that my father had applied rather too late in probably 1938. Uh, and they had a number 15,000 and something, and it was moving by the thousands per year. So it would have been 1944 or 45 before he could have emigrated to the United States. So things were not helpful on the European scene. They left him to do what evil he wanted to do, and he did it. And then so he went about doing it. So. While the, the extermination in, in uh, Eastern Europe was fairly rapid and fairly brutal and fairly uh, substantial, in Germany we didn't know about it either, that what was happening. And no one really knew what was happening beyond 
the borders in Poland and in Russia afterwards. And so in the 1940-41, they started to round up Jewish people in the villages and the city and putting them on transport. This was euphemistically called resettlement. You're going to resettlement to eastern countries. You work and you'll be doing fine. You'll be given land, you'll be given uh, opportunities to work, etc. It all sounded uh, innocuous almost. And uh, as turns out later, which I, of course, and nobody, I think, we didn't know, but my parents may have known, we had to pay for our own transport. We paid for our own tickets on these uh, railroad cars, which were either freight cars or very down-out uh, down passenger cars. And so my, I, my father had uh, one, two, three sisters, each of whom had five or six children, and, um, and his mother and, his, and two unmarried sisters. And um, over the period 40 to 41 and early 42, they all went on different transports to Riga, to Riga in Latvia, Litzmannstadt, or as it's now called Lodz in Poland, uh, Lublin in Poland, uh, and, uh, and some, a few, to Theresienstadt. And that, that was the fact that my father, as well as my two older brothers, and ultimately at age 14 also myself, were working in uh, war-related industries, that we were among the last to get out of Cologne. Uh, none of these other people have uh, ever been coming back. I might as well say offhand that out of the nine of us who went, uh, just myself and one brother survived. The rest also perished in, in various places, including my mother and uh, the three younger children, younger than myself, in Auschwitz in the gas chambers. So that's, that's the way the situation was in Germany. So they emptied Ger the German Jews and they confiscated their, their belongings. And um, from then on, the story comes back to just the story of the camps. And one of the reasons for survival, and you know, I must say right off the bat, and I'm sure everyone else has said similarly, survival has been mostly luck. There's not much that anyone could do. Uh, those people who did not were not immediately selected to go to gas chambers or other means of of immediate death, um, were used as, as workers somewhere, and they usually knew very little about what was happening in camps like Auschwitz. It was a central unit place where they came and then were farmed out again to, to uh, factories nearby and even farther away and even back into Germany. Uh, so now if I want to talk briefly about the, the next step from us was on July 27, 1942, we, we went into the strains and went to uh, Theresien or Theresienstadt or the city of Teresa, who was uh, an empress of Austria, uh, in northern Czechoslovakia. And um, that was a ghetto. And 
we were just lucky to be winding up there rather than in some of the other camps that were straight extermination camps. And to stay there for a while, or otherwise I would not be alive for sure. Uh, it was a camp, uh, an, a garrison city, um, old buildings, but uh, you know, it used to be a, uh, the cavalry used to be there, they had stables there, and all of this was converted to, to housing. And um, life was relatively simple. You were just confined, and you were under a Jewish administration, and you never saw a single uniformed SS man or a soldier inside the ghetto. Uh, the only problem was food, limited, very limited, but still survival was possible. And there were no medications, although the, the, uh, the best doctors of Europe were all there. But they had nothing to work with except a little rubbing alcohol and, uh, and their, their scalpels and their, their tools. But uh, no medications, nothing else that's available. <coughs> so under these conditions, my grandmother died in uh, 1943, a year, about a year after we arrived there. We were all separated. Uh, my mother and father did stay together and the young, with the younger, very young, much younger children. The uh, three of us who were uh, between the ages of uh, 14, 15 and, uh, and 18, I guess, were put into what they call the youth building, uh, where we lived on, on simple uh, beds, uh, Nothing, nothing very fancy, mostly boards, but uh, no mattresses or anything. But you get used to it. Young, young persons get used to it. And so we didn't suffer greatly in, the, in that uh, ghetto. And my, my oldest brother was even working in one of the kitchens and occasionally supplied my parents and, and us with an extra ration of something or something. Well, what was the ration? We might be interested to know. The ration was... Not very much different from what we got later, except we got used to get more. Uh, a small loaf of bread in the morning and a small loaf of bread at night and a soup at uh, noontime, which still was reasonably full of uh, stuff, sometimes sausage, but most of the time just uh, uh, beets and uh, potatoes and similar uh, ingredients. And coffee we got, which was actually very important. Chicory, chicory coffee, but coffee. And uh, so that was in the morning, and at noontime there was soup, and at nighttime another loaf and, and coffee. And some margarine. Yes, ma'am. What was your sensibility? You were how old when you went? I'm sorry, when you went to... Um, to Reisenstadt. Yes. yes. Yeah, well, I was 14. And you had, was it terrifying all the time? Were you anxious where your parents were? Did you accept that this was going well, on? Well, you, you accepted it because it was day after day the same thing and nothing, if in front of your eyes, nothing dreadful happened. The old and the weak were dying because they didn't get their 
attention, medical attention. They didn't get their food that they needed. Uh, insulin was not available, for example. My grandmother was uh, insulin dependent. And uh, so <laughs> these things happened, but you took those in stride, okay? And uh, it was months after all. It came in July of, uh, or practically August, 42. And we left to go to Auschwitz in March of 44. That's quite a long time. And that's one of the reasons for survival. By the time we went to Auschwitz, I was 16. So it's already a difference. And while I'd lost some weight and some skeletal muscle and whatnot, but I did not uh, uh, feel physically very bad. This, the, uh, the schooling went on in some ways. We had enough people that were qualified to do that, so we carried on something equivalent to schools inside these uh, youth homes. And uh, we even had some limited sports, gymnastics and stuff every day, which was always good. And the time went. So I don't want to dwell on that because it was an unusual set of uh, places, and I said usual place. Uh, what should have given us pause, though, was that being in Czechoslovakia, it was also the central point through which all of the Czech Jews, Jews were passed, and they were coming in, and within two or three weeks they were going on to Auschwitz and other places. But uh, those ones people that had come earlier, these, let's say, doctors and higher-level people and, or people who had been deferred for some reason or other, uh, they were left in peace, generally, and I would say that the mortality rate probably was only about uh, 3%, somewhere around there, normally. And nothing from violence, or almost nothing from violence. The ghetto was established to allow visits by Red Cross and Danish. The Danes particularly were very active in trying to see what was happening and to help, surprisingly, but they, they are very courageous people, apparently. And um, some, some came, not too often, but some came and were satisfied. And the Germans were happy they could, they could show them this, this place. Right? So, but ultimately we were then transported to Auschwitz and then of course it was a different life. The uh, uh, trains were, were cattle trains by that time, although we were, we were told that we can take a suitcase, we took suitcases. And as soon as you arrived, of course, the situation was entirely different. You, you were... Uh, rushed or torn out of the, out of the cars and uh, lined up on the ramp, immediately on the ramp. Separation was immediate as well. Women to one side, with children one side, men on the other side. And, uh, there was no time to say goodbye. My father and my mother had a very quick embrace and that was the end of that. And uh, this this was, however, <laughs> again, it was done that way, but it was not done in the sense of bringing everybody to the gas chamber. This is an accident. 
again, they had set up one camp in Auschwitz, Camp B, for uh, people from that ghetto, and the previous transport was already there, and all of us came alive from this train into that camp. It was uh, still somewhat wintry in Poland. It was not very pleasant, and it felt very ominous, and we already could see at that time the the flames from the crematorium. But um, we didn't know what it was, except the smell was a bit highly unusual, and that's something else you don't really get used to, but uh, there it was. Okay. And um, so we were in that camp for about four weeks or five weeks, uh, getting rations, not too much different from those in, in uh, the ghetto, but a little weaker in, in most ways. And um, then one day, uh, and we were keeping our clothes and our hair and everything else. Then one day, uh, and we saw, of course, that the neighboring camps, they all wore their, their uh, blue and white striped uh, prison uniforms and uh, um, had no hair on their head. So, but on one day it came then that they gave us our numbers. We got numbers in a new, new cycle. 200,000 people had been numbered before and they decided to give us an A cycle, so we have very low A numbers. We were the first ones with A. After that came B numbers. All of them went up to about 200,000. Uh, and um, those apparently all, all initially were designed to, to provide the workforce, of course. So then they started to take uh, people, able people, men mostly, uh, out for work, for assignment to work, and, and they went out of the camp. And everyone went out of the camp except mothers and children and old people and all those that were clearly not able to work. And um, again, as I said, this luck and some unfathomable decision by a, a very famous gentleman from, from uh, the um, uh, German medical staff, Dr. Joseph Mengele, he had decided, and as he conducted experiments with many things, people, that he would uh, come and uh, take out about 100 young men. And that age, about 14 to, uh, to uh, 16, 17. And so we were selected uh, upon careful scrutiny by, by Dr. Mengele of our naked bodies. Uh, we were selected to go to the only camp in, in uh, Birkenau that was actually uh, servicing all the activities <coughs> that were going on there, including the uh, gas chambers, the crematoria, the arrival of the people that came in, the uh, sorting of the goods, pulling out of the gold teeth, out of mouths and whatnot. All of these things were done by people in that camp. They had different functions dealing with the upkeep of that uh, uh, extermination operation camp, the whole camp. And uh, then the transports kept arriving 
one by one, we were assigned a, a uh, hay wagon detail. We were given three or four hay wagons. I don't remember. I think it's three. And uh, we used these to, to uh, bring stones and goods and various other things from our camp or pick them up somewhere else. And we had work to do every day. And when we didn't have work to do every day, we were just sent out to do work to some spot outside the camp and pick up uh, stones or pick up soil or, or whatever there was to do. But we weren't really forced to very hard labor. The thing was, though, that we were quartered in the penal unit in the camp that held the what they called criminals. Anybody who was there who was... Uh, who made an attempt to escape, or who offended a, uh, an SS officer, or who had been found with lice or with uh, some kind of uh, um, improper clothing and whatnot, spoiled clothing and whatnot. These things were all regimented very strongly. Uh, so we saw in that, in that environment, we were put under the, under the tutelage of the leader of that camp, of that uh, block, who was a, uh, a German from the Sudetenland, which is a part of Czechoslovakia, um, which the Germans claimed to be uh, their German uh, heritage. So um, we were there, and we, we saw a lot of hangings. We saw a lot of um, uh, killing by, uh, by, by caning. We underwent also, we were not spared the canes either when, if some one of us had something wrong. And I, I've at one point, had 15, and uh, I felt those for about a month. As in the special, a special uh, instrument in which you put your feet in there, you know, and once they were in there, they were stuck, and then you stretched you out with your, with your hands that somebody pulled him from the other side. And another, uh, usually one of the people who, uh, who worked inside the uh, stable or block, whatever you want to call that, and who were uh, entitled to, to chase us or to do anything with us that they had to. Um, it wasn't an easy life, but we were, again, day by day, what was going on. The only difference is that now we came under the regular regulation of the, of the uh, um, selections, because there were regularly held selections by the SS uh, of people who looked emaciated or who Again, as I said, lice was a major problem, but you couldn't have any. How it was possible not to have any, but you couldn't have any when they came. And uh, so um, that was there always with us. And of course, we always, we always had the, um, the smell of human blood in our nostrils and uh, the thought that, uh, that, and I maybe want to read that as one of the other poems that you can follow along. <clears throat> I'm just uh, introducing the first two stanzas what lilies are normally like. Out there, proud heads held upright, lilies bloom in soft, huge splendor. 
dew pearled, leaving moonlit night, kissing dawn in moist surrender. Like a goblet, upward reaching, petals gather starlight pure, tears of joy and of beseeching, salt the sweet of love's allure. Not in here does earth yield flowers, no. We make the lilies bloom out of bodies that were ours, ere we reached this place of doom. Flesh and bone and blood and fire mixed to form our lilies red, spewing forth from every spire, herds of humans, slaughtered, dead. Night on night, death blows the lily, warning us we yet can see, threatening that, will ye, nil ye, here you too shall cease to be. And that's a kind of a thing that you carry with you most of your life, of course, but it's something that you don't easily forget, that, that smell, that, the nights, the nights of these uh, uh, crematorium blowing away. Now, I wanted to say one thing more, and that's this maybe most important that came to my uh, being in Auschwitz, and that is that the dehumanization is the, the most critical thing that the Germans did, and it is probably the same, if I make the analogy for slaughtering of cattle, we do it, I guess, in the same way. The persons in the camps, number one, became numbers. They had no individuality. They had no reading material. They had no leisure. They had no nothing. nothing. Uh, maybe I was luckier than others. I had um, memorized a great deal of things, among others, the entire uh, largest German piece of, of uh, classical work, the uh, Faust by Goethe. And so I was reciting that pretty regularly to myself as a means of resistance, if you like. Uh, but most others didn't have that. So you were just an, a, a number, and you were looked upon from the outside by the SS and by the people who, SS incidentally, were not all Germans. The worst of these came from, from other countries, and uh, they picked, of course, the best kind of people. Latvia is, is one of the main suppliers of these uh, people. Some from Germany, of course, also, but Latvia and uh, Ukraine, even when, once they conquered Ukraine, there were a lot of Ukraines. I, in, the, in this camp, in the penal colony, I found about 10 or 15 Russians, Cossacks, who uh, introduced me to, this, to the songs of the Cossacks and who occasionally would sing the inter Internationale, the, the song of uh, communism, more or less. Uh, but um, they were the remnants of thousands and thousands of, of Russians who were brought there and just didn't survive. They were just the last few. And most of them wound up in the penal colony for some reason. Next to us, in the barracks, next to us, uh, which with an adjoining wall, was the Sonderkommando, the uh, people who uh, had charge of the gas chambers and the crematoriums. There was no communication whatever with, with them. They were held in strict confinement. They were largely or mostly Polish Jews, strong young men, and uh, who uh, 
were regularly about six weeks exterminated themselves and replaced by another set. We knew this, not myself, but the knowledge came through from the Polish Jews that were there, that, uh, or the Poles that were there actually, who uh, had contact with them by uh, sounds, by things that they managed to do. But we only knew it, and uh, we, there was no other, no other contact with them. We saw these people marching out and marching in the morning and at night, and that's it. So that's not a very nice life either. However, it, uh, out of that came in October of, uh, of um, 44. So I'm arriving in March of 44, so I stayed there until January 45. Uh, wait a moment. I stayed there until October, end of October 45, 44. Uh, at, the end of, at the end of October, just before we were uh, taken out of the camp, uh, there was a, uh, a revolt of those people. And they uh, did uh, disable one of the crematoria and they did kill, I guess, a number of the uh, SS and other people. But ultimately, uh, only about 40 of what was perhaps uh, 500 people got away, and the rest were captured, hanged, shot, whatever. So this was, this was a, uh, an experience, again, day by day. And it, the, I want to stress the, the point that you no longer felt an individual, a human. You're just part of a mass that had to behave the way the uh, master race wanted it. And so we went and, uh, and we, we had our job to do. And we, we did, I did, we did get into other camps. We saw the Hungarians arrive and, and uh, being killed and sent away. Um, we, we had another camp one father, one father away removed from us, where the gypsies were confined. The Germans, uh, the German Aryan master race concept, uh, disliked everything that was not uh, pure. And uh, I don't know, they didn't know enough about genetics then, but apparently they used it anyhow. So gypsies and uh, homosexuals and uh, handicapped people in any way. Uh, they were just taken and thrown into the camps without regard. And uh, they were not Jewish. And there, were, there were lots of people of, that were not Jewish in the camps, especially from Poland again. There was an underground. Anyone got, getting caught would get there. So we had a very mixed uh, population from all over, all over Europe. But... Uh, the dominant victims were, were Jews at that moment, at least, because they were being herded into this situation and exterminated as fast as they could or sent out to camps. Now, I guess the supply of uh, labor from this, from this source was getting low, so they collected people from, um, uh, from Auschwitz to go on transport uh, because the Russians were coming. That was towards the end of 44. The Russians were maybe 
200 miles away. Um, and uh, I was with, I was about 20 of us boys were going into a uh, work camp. So I experienced that as well in Sosnowitz, there's a city not far from, from about maybe, maybe 30, 40 miles away from Auschwitz. <coughs> we was um, put under the charge of a Polish uh, specialist making the uh, barrels for cannons on a lathe. Uh, dangerous work because if you made a mistake, you you were dead, of course. Mm -hmm. And next to us was another group that was making munitions of sorts. It wasn't too long, but again, this was something that you just went along and you, you actually got a little more food than you did in Auschwitz proper because they did want some effort out of you. And then... Uh, Come, the Russians came closer and they decided, okay, to close Auschwitz, that camp, that main camp. All of the other, other camps had already been closed. <coughs> and we, um, they were, we were asked, we, we, the, our, the 100 boys were asked uh, to, okay? Thanks, okay, thanks. And I volunteered uh, as a carpenter, Actually, I had welding experience, but I hadn't thought I, well, I didn't want to really do that work. So I said I was a carpenter in my previous incarnation. And uh, about 20 of us went to this other camp. Then the Russians were coming, and we were 900 in that camp, and we were marched through um, the countryside in, in January. Snow, of course, snow and ice and snowing all the time. And that was one of the marches. My march started with 900 people, and we arrived with 200 in uh, northern Czechoslovakia, where we were put into trains and went to uh, a concentration camp in Austria called Mauthausen. And this, again, like Auschwitz, was a collection point. Only uh, they were not really set up for extermination. They just set up for, for work. And uh, I worked there for uh, um, from four months, three, four months, in blind tunnel, in a blind tunnel uh, on a machine, making revolver, the, the shapes for the revolvers. Um, 12 hours night shift or day shift. And it was at this point that I became really emaciated and well, just carried myself to work and from work and, and nothing left. There was not much left of me. Uh, I'm describing the, uh, the march here. And that's uh, the third unit there. And I might as well get you the feel of that. In those 12 days, as I said, we lost 700 people. And I was very close to losing myself. We were marching during the night. And one or another person was usually getting to the point where they fall by the wayside. Then somebody comes and helps and pops you up between two people and keeps you marching. So march on, brother, march on. You know, that's what, that's what that was about. One shoe in the hand, freezing wet, the other ice bound to his skin. 
The wind blew the cap off his head, scraped open and raw his shin. March on, brother, march on. From hunger the stomach is growling, four days on the march without food, and ever the shots and the howling of orders, up, march, or I'll shoot. March on, brother, march on. You will be next, brother. Look, pistols drawn, and an SS man is coming your way. So in line, brother, stifle that yawn, or you won't see another day. March on, brother, march on. Look left, where the corpses are coiled in the grip of the death-dealing blow. Look right, where blood steams as if boiled toward the sky from the frozen snow. March on, brother, march on. Trust the end nears that peace follows swift, bringing blessings to soothe your pain. Don't give up now. Will yourself to lift your feet to see freedom again. Ultimately, that was the main, the main uh, hope that kept most of us alive, that we might overcome and survive to the point where there was no more enslavement. So that was in Mauthausen and in Gusen, one of the camps there, where I was in the blind, these blind tunnels working. And on the 5th of May, 1945, the advanced uh, armored divisions of uh, Patton's army were, came to, to liberate us. So I was liberated in Austria near the city of Linz, the place where Hitler was born and... Uh, and uh, go up. You've been listening to a podcast from University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at www.uctv.tv. Thank you for listening.